Charlie Brown's Christmas. Celebrates 50 years this year. I think I remember the first time it came on. I was just a wee person at that point, but still... Uh, Charlie Brown is depressed. It's Christmas time, and he is just out, out of, of sorts in a major, major way. Depression and disillusionment, despair are just hanging on Charlie like a tinsel on the tree. He's not even sure exactly why. His own issues that he have seem to be compounded at Christmas time, just a little bit heavier at Christmas time. It s- seems that Christmas is like that. Uh, even for us, where it's supposed to be a time of cheer, but it seems that our personal burdens get a little bit heavier, especially if they're relationally oriented around Christmas time. Now, also, the, the world newspapers, headlines probably add to some of the cynicism or some of the, the pain, the, the stabilizing inertia in our own hearts this, this season. And if I'm, I'm only 54, but... It seems to me that 2015 has been a rough year for humanity. Um, between the incredible, looks like, uh, exacerbation of violence and hatred in this world. So it seems like the folk in this world just very angry, angry people. Between global, global terrorism and racism. Between the embracing of things that are just morally apprehensible and yet celebrated the well, very straight in your face persecution and injustice to Christianity the the inhumane things that are done against uh, innocent men and women and children this has been a rough year the saber rattling amongst all the superpowers in the world I'm guessing that there's enough stuff in this world to give us all a Charlie Brown Christmas now, Charlie, he's, 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 he's not sure how to handle this and what he's supposed to do. So he goes looking for professional help. And he says, you know, what is the deal? What's wrong with me? And Lucy lets him know, well, you know, maybe, Charlie, you need some participation. You need to get involved. And so she recommends that he lead the uh, Christmas pageant. And he embraces this wholeheartedly on the front end. But, of course, the kids don't pay any attention to Charlie. They ignore him. They mock him. They ridicule him. And so Charlie, in a point of frustration, everything comes in on him. He just screams out a huge question. It's a great question that we all need to be asking. And he gets his answer. And uh, let's see it. Charlie Brown's uh, life is now changed. And what's fascinating about that is his circumstances didn't change and the people in his life didn't change and he's still Charlie Brown, but he has a whole new perspective. You know, we often look at the stuff on the outside that needs to be changed if we're going to be happy. You know, I need to, my kids need to be changed or my spouse needs to be changed or my job needs to be changed or my financial situation needs to be changed or my health needs to be changed. And those things have to be changed if I'm going to be happy. But maybe... Maybe the real change is an internal change. And as, as Charlie is exposed to the word of God, in this place, the, the Christmas story, radical change happens. That's why we're pushing this, eat this book thing, because God's word does do that. And when, when, when Charlie begins to see Christmas from God's perspective, radical shift. I don't know if you need a radical shift this morning. But all of us probably need to see Christmas more from God's perspective. And so if you'll turn with me to Luke chapter 2, we're going to look at this very text that um, Linus, that Linus quoted. Let me, let me, can I pray for us though again? 
would you pray with me in your heart? Because, uh, Lord, would you open our eyes to see what you have for us this morning? God, we, we can't do it in and of ourselves. We pray that your spirit would apply and help us to see. Our desire is to, God, see more of ourselves and you and Christmas through your eyes. And so I pray you would, you would do that this morning, God. In your son's name we ask it. Amen. Now this is an incredibly rich text, this Luke chapter 2. You could do a whole series on this, and I'm assuming that we're going to do that in time. But uh, there are just three things this morning that we want to look at, we want to focus on, three elements of this story. And I believe if we can see them as God has put them here for us, they can have a major transformation in our heart and, and our, our perspective. The, the first thing we're going we're to look at is, is we're going to look at the journey from Nazareth to Bethlehem. And this is what we're going to see. That God is not simply watching over, but God is working in. God's not simply watching over, but God is working in. You know, the providence of God is a doctrine in Scripture that is, is as solid of a doctrine as the doctrine of the atonement or the doctrine of the Holy Spirit. And yet we kind of ignore this one and miss it. But yet it's over and over and again in Scripture and it has the power to do what it's supposed to do to radically change us. Um, most of us in life, uh, we attribute things that happen to us just to natural causes, etc., etc. Uh, unless something comes up that we're not able to explain. See, those are the things we, we say, well, that's God doing that one. God did that. Uh, everything else we, we attribute to natural causes. Now, here's the problem. In my life, anyway, I'm guessing yours, supernatural occurrences are not an everyday event. You know, how often does that happen? Well, it's, so that's going to lead us to believe, well, you know, God is not really involved in my life except for when those things happen. And mostly he's just kind of watching over from heaven somewhere. He's watching and he feels some sort of benevolence towards me maybe. But scripture would say, I think we see a picture here. He is not simply watching over. He is working in your life. It's... Luke chapter 2, verse 1, it says, In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. This was the first census that took place while Quirinius was the governor of Syria. And everyone went to his own town to register. So Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house and line of David. He went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child. Now, you, you, you make sure you get the picture here, right? They're hanging out in Nazareth. Mary's nine months pregnant, can deliver the baby anytime. Now, they got to get to Bethlehem. Bethlehem's a hundred mile walk. That's a long walk. That's between like distance between here and, and, and Cleveland. But you need to know, Bethlehem is, is no Cleveland, right? We mentioned this before. Bethlehem is more like a McCain. There's no reason anyone would want to go there. It's just nothing. There's just nothing there. To our knowledge, Joseph and, and Mary did not have immediate relatives there. Maybe some distant, but they had no immediate. They didn't, they'd never been there before, according to our understanding. But they needed to get there because there's a prophecy about the Messiah. Micah 5.2 
Says, says, but you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, though you are the smallest, or you are small of the clans of Judah, yet out of you will arise a, a leader for me, for Israel, uh, whose, whose origins are of old from ancient times. The prophecy is that Jesus is going to, Messiah is going to have to be born in Bethlehem. But they right now are a hundred miles away with her nine months pregnant. Now, Mary and Joseph should have, first of all, they knew who Mary was carrying. The angel told them, you've got the Messiah. This is the son of God. So they knew who they had. Also, you would assume that they knew Micah 5.2. Now, there are no fives and twos at that point. But they would have known the prophecy. Remember, the wise men came to Herod at the temple, and they said, where is Jesus supposed to be born? And the scribes, without even blinking, said, come on, everyone knows that. He's supposed to be born in Bethlehem. And then they quote this text. Mary and Joseph, being such a godly group of folk that they are, uh, certainly they understand and know this. So I ask myself, why in the world is Mary, nine months pregnant, a hundred miles away from the place that the Messiah has to be born? What did she think? I would assume that they would have gotten to Bethlehem several months earlier, you know, to to make sure it was safe and, and to get there and get settled in ready for the birth. Now, I don't know if they didn't connect the dots if they just forgot, if that whatever the purpose, they were great people, but they were people. They had limitations in their own accidents, their own missteps, whatever else. Seems like it would keep them, keep Jesus from being born in the right place. So how was God going to get Mary and Joseph to Bethlehem for Jesus to be born? Well, that's where you enter uh, Octavian, Caesar Augustus. And, and Caesar Augustus comes out with a decree. And the decree is, is for a census, for the sake of his greed, for the sake of, of taxation. And if you think about this decree, it's fascinating. Because if he would have issued the decree just a little bit later, then they could have stayed in Nazareth. Jesus would have been born in Nazareth, and then they could have went down. If he would have issued the decree earlier, then Mary and Joseph could have went on to Bethlehem and got back home in time for Jesus to be born. But the, the timing of the decree was such... That when they got there, Jesus was born in Bethlehem. You know, it's amazing when you think too, why did Joseph bring Mary? He did not have to legally bring Mary. He could have went on, on his own and, and registered. And the general uh, explanation for that one is because Joseph realized that Back home in Nazareth with Mary's rejection, just Nazareth without him was not a safe place for Mary. And this 100-mile trip on the back of a donkey through the desert, nine-month pregnant woman, was safer for her than to leave her back in uh, Nazareth. And so he has to take Mary, the the, the decree of, of, of the Caesar, to end up in Bethlehem to be in the exact place he's supposed to be at the right time. When you see Mary and Joseph in Bethlehem, you've got to know they didn't get there on their own. I'm, I'm, I'm just guessing. But I'm thinking that they were thinking, this is so stupid. You know, for crying out loud, I'm nine months pregnant, and I've got, the, you know, you got Jesus, you got the Savior. Nothing, anything happens to him, the whole world is sunk. You know, we've got to protect him, and we've got to make sure that he's, he's safe. And, but yet they end up in, in Bethlehem. You... God gets them exactly where they need to be. And you know what? Same thing is true in your life and my life. God works through the natural to get us exactly 
where we need to be. Whether it's angel swings or whether it's a decree of a Caesar who's, who's in his greed, God puts the situations around to get us where we're supposed to be. Now, let me ask you this. This morning, are you finding yourself in Bethlehem? Kind of a lonely place. A place away from home or at least away from real intimacy a place that you're pretty convinced no one else understands it's a situation you would not have chosen for yourself no one in their right mind would have but you find yourself there and maybe you'd even be blaming the Caesar Augustuses of the world for putting you there or some stupid mistake you made for putting yourself there or maybe God because he is sovereign and all for putting you there this is what you need to know you're not there by accident. You're just not there by accident. God is, is with you in the midst of it. Romans 8, this is a, a, a great text where, where he lets us know that all things work together for good. Not all things being good, but all things work together for good. I know this creates some questions. I, I got that. But we want to focus not on the questions, but on the reality of the providence of God. You, you can't... Get outside the providence of God. You know, what's it? Matthew chapter 10. This is a, a, great, a great text. He says, Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? Yet not one of them will fall to the ground apart from the will of your father. And even the very hairs of your head are all numbered. So don't be afraid. You are worth more than many sparrows. Reality is, your life, my life, is not in the hands of, of terrorists. Or in the hands of the, the uh, financial powers in this world. They're not in the hands of viruses or accidents. Uh, but in the hands of a loving God. Always. They're always. The, the providence of God. Now let me throw a caveat. Because this is important. Joseph. I wondered if he came to a crossroad in his own mind saying, yeah, you know, I know what Caesar said and all. And I'm supposed to go down there to Bethlehem. But let's face it, Mary is nine months pregnant. And this is not a safe road. And this is, is there's no Holiday Inns along the way or McDonald's. This is going to be a tough track for us to get there. And again, I don't want to do anything that would endanger her or that would endanger the baby. And so, you know what? I like Caesar and all, but I'm just going to have to stay home. We would say, well, I guess... The command from Caesar, the constituted authority, from, from, from his authority was to go. And he recognized what that first point was, that God was providentially in charge of my life. God's even over the Caesars. And so you know what? I'm going to obey. And so he goes. And maybe even outside his own common sense in this one, but holding to obedience, he gets exactly where he's supposed to, to be. For the baby to be born. And because Jesus is born in Bethlehem, it is in official Jewish records. It's in official Roman records. It would say something like this. A son of David, Joseph of Nazareth, Mary of Nazareth, Jesus of Nazareth. Do you know how that's significant that will be for Jesus down the road? When the, he is proclaimed as uh, the, the son of David. No one disputed that. They had no ground. They couldn't dispute it. It was officially in the records. If Joseph would have decided, I'm not going to be obedient on this one. God will take 100% responsibility for the life given 100% to him. 
So again, if you're in Bethlehem this morning, and you're, you, you just need to know God is there as well, and God is, is with you, and somehow, based on his word, it's, 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 it's uh, all things work together. It, it will. It will. He doesn't just watch over. He's not simply watching over from afar. Ah, don't you, ooh, no, no, no. He's working in, even the details. Also, when we look at the, the text, let's look at the, the stable for just a second. Um, verses 6 and 7. Which says, while they were there, they're in Bethlehem now, the time came for the baby to be born, and she gave birth to her firstborn, a son, and she wrapped him in cloths and placed him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. Now, when you think about the inn, you think thinking maybe Budgetel or, you know, Holiday Inn or, you know, uh, Motel 6 or Bob's Pink Cloud, whatever, whatever, you, whatever you're into, you're thinking this stuff. But this was, this was not, the word here for inn is not the typical Greek word for commercial inn. It means simply guest quarters. A, a town the size of Bethlehem probably would not have a commercial inn. Um, hospitality, of course, is really huge at this point. There's no email, there's no making reservations, letting people knowing ahead of time that you're coming. And so when strangers would come into town, it was normal for other people to take them in and to, to house them and take care of them. But the guest rooms were all full. All the Romans were there for the census. The Jewish officials were there for the, for the census. And so he, Joseph gets there and there's just no, no room in the guest room. Now, they would probably have a, uh, like a community center. It'd be like almost a big campground where they would be a big barn. The top floor, the loft of the barn, the visitors could come and they could roll out their sleeping stuff and, and, and sleep. And then they would keep their animals on that first floor. That's the barn area. If you ever go to a uh, regular hotel, you'll probably notice an, an uh, apron of asphalt around it. Uh, with lots of lines, it's where all the patrons keep their modes of transportation. That's what this was. It was a parking garage, basically, and they kept all their, their animals there. And so Jesus, because there's no room in the, the inn, there's no room up upstairs, there's all the guest quarters are full, Jesus is born in a, a barn. He's born in a parking garage. And so you have to ask yourself, why? Why was he born in... And you can't say, well, there was no room in the inn. On one level, yes, but do you think God is not able to open up a house somewhere? Do you think God is not able to, to make somebody have a, a, a special room that they just didn't forget, they, they displaced themselves and put Jesus in, or, or that maybe somebody had special concern for Mary? Was not God able to do that? Is there any prophecy that says he has to be born in a barn? No. Is, is there any being born in a barn, will that take away the miraculousness of who he is? No. So why is Jesus born in a barn. I mean, he's not there by accident. He's not there because Moses, I mean, because Moses, because Joseph left late that morning in his procrastination. Everything filled up and oh no. That's not the reason. He's not there because he just really likes poverty and doesn't really like nice things. That's not the reason. There's a reason why Jesus is in the, the stable, that God in his providence has him there. When I came to FAC five years ago, uh, this is that first week I was here. Somebody, and I don't even know who, who they were, and they didn't mean anything negative by it at all, but we were just talking, and they said, you know, Sunday when you preach, you know, you're wearing your suit and tie, blah, 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 blah. I didn't hear anything else. And in, up to that point, 
I had only preached in a suit and tie. I had never preached without a tie on, ever, up to that point. But something about what was said, about how it was said, it just really made me think. I spent a lot of time that week on my knees. Lord, what am I supposed to do with this? See, I, I knew Rick, I know, know Rick, and I, I admire him, and he's got a lot of gifts and abilities that I, I just do not have, and I knew that. And having talked with the board and having spent time with the Lord, I knew that it wasn't supposed to be just continuation of the same old thing. We were going, in, it, was, it was a new day. And so when I came up to preach the first time, no tie. And it was very intentional. It wasn't because this is just what I like. It was, I was making a statement in a way. Jesus comes to earth. God comes to earth. And he's wearing swaddling clothes. And he's in a stable. He's making a statement. He's telling us something very important. Now, if you look at this text, I believe what they're doing, what Luke is doing is he's contrasting Jesus with, with Caesar Augustus, Octavian, because they both will share the same title. Octavian's title, Savior of the World, the, the, the Roman Senate said he was. And then the angel says, no, 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 the Savior of the World is in Bethlehem. Caesar, he's in, he's in Rome. And now... If you're a Caesar, if you're a powerful ruler, if you're, you're leading, if you're in charge, that's where you're going to be. You're in Rome. City of one million people. There would not be another city of one million people until 1800. London would do it. I mean, this was, a, this was the place in the world. Jesus, he's born in uh, Bethlehem, maybe 2,000 people. What, why? Why? What's he, what's he saying? You, 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 you've got... Uh, 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 Caesar Augustus, can you imagine what his palace must look like? The gold and the marble and the mosaics and the frescoes. I mean, it's just... <sighs> Jesus, he's born in a, a, a barn. And let's not look like our, our American 21st century suburban picture of, of this thing. It's filthy. There was a carpet of manure on the floor. The, the trough was mildew and bacteria laden. It was a very hygienically messed up place. It was a, an awful place. You've got Caesar. If you were to look at the Times, Time Magazine's top 10 wealthiest people who've ever lived, you're going to find Carnegie on there, and you'll find Bill Gates, and you'll find Rockefeller. You will also find Caesar Augustus. His net worth was $4.6 trillion. Still today, one of the most wealthy people who've ever lived on this earth, Caesar. And then you've got Jesus. That we know, Mary and Joseph... When the law said when you came to give a sacrifice, you had to sacrifice a lamb. Unless you were really poor. Then you could get by by just sacrificing a couple of cheap birds. Mary and Joseph sacrificed the birds. They're just very, very poor. What is Jesus saying? You know, it's amazing. How would you look if you could have chosen your looks? Is there anything you do about different? Anything you do different? Jesus did. And yet Isaiah 53 says there was nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. What is, what is Jesus saying with all this? This is what he's saying. He's saying it's not what you think. My kingdom is an upside down kingdom. That folk in this world who think that their salvation is, their hope is, their security is in Acquisition, it's in consumerism, it's, it's, it's going to Rome. But listen, if you're after life and you're going on the road to Rome, you're going the wrong way. 
You're chasing after the wrong thing. I think this is so ironic, isn't it? That that Christmas, what Jesus is trying to say is, is, that is not of value to me. Luke 16, this is a great text, verses 14 and 15. This is the Pharisees who loved money, heard all this, and were sneering at Jesus. Jesus said to them, what is highly valued among men is detestable in God's sight. And so this, this Christmas, where Jesus is making a statement that, that my kingdom is, is not like that, that is no value to me. We've turned this whole holiday into major acquisition stuff and consumerism. And what it, that's what it's, it seems to all be about. And that was one of Charlie's Brown's major issues. If you look at the descriptions of heaven. Heaven, you might expect it to be described as nothing but glitz in God. And, uh, but you know, it's really not. When it says the streets are gold, that just means that which is worthless. Back then their streets were mud. That which is worthless. That which the animals would go to the bathroom in. That which is just gold in heaven. It's, it's, just, it's just a statement. The gates of heaven are, are pearls and, and stones because getting in is, is so precious. But heaven itself does not have that kind of a gaudy description. And Jesus is saying, my kingdom... Is not that way. Let me ask you this Christmas time. Do you find yourself on the road to Rome? That is where salvation is. That's where hope is. That's where security is. You're heading towards Rome. Jesus would say you go in the wrong direction. The angels would say you go in the wrong direction. And if you are able to acquire substantially. Um, that's, that's, that's fine. There will be a day. When. If you, unless you die suddenly, that you will hear the same word that the rest of us are going to hear. And that is that you only have X amount of time left. No one gets out of this alive. And at that point, I, I believe based on scripture, you'll be saying, what have I chased after? This is not my savior. This is, this is, this is not uh, the security and, and the hope that I had hoped it would be. That's why the angels say, you're on the wrong road. So Jesus is saying that he doesn't just watch over. God doesn't just watch over our life. It's a message of Christmas. He, 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 he uh, works in our life intimately, closer than we would ever imagine. Uh, here, that his kingdom is an upside-down kingdom. It's going the other. It's not what you think. And thirdly, let's look at the shepherds for a second. The shepherds. Um, and there were shepherds living out in the flocks in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. Shepherds, these guys were by this point in history. Shepherding used to be a, a uh, respectable uh, task, industry. But at this point, nah, it's, it's, it has fallen on some hard times. The shepherds had a reputation of uh, uh, the mafia. They had scruples of the hell's angels. They were just a, a, a ragtag, scallywag group of hobos and vagrant folk. These were some of the bottom dwellers of, of society. And what made them so awful in this Jewish culture that they were in is not their their... Poverty, because everybody was poor, unless you're Caesar Augustus. Everybody is poor. But what made them um, so detestable is the fact that they were considered unclean. The Jewish law was pretty complex. 
And if you were to go to the temple, you had to be clean. Now, if you got involved with disease of any kind, you were diseased or you were around anybody, you were rendered unclean. If you were around death in any way, uh, then you were rendered unclean. If you were around uh, feces of any kind, and that was very unclean, you were unclean, you couldn't go to the, the, the temple. Now, think of shepherds. They are dealing with diseased animals all the time. They are dealing with animals that are dying on them or that they've got a butcher all the time. They are, are, let's face it, tons of animals. They are walking around in an excrement. They are unclean all the time. They can't never go to the temple because this, they didn't just go for a, a shift and then go home and shower and go do the rest of their life. They were shepherds, you know, 24-7, 365 days a year. And if you can't go to the temple, the temple is where there's forgiveness. It's where there's atonement. It's, it's where there's grace. It's where there's relationship with God. When, when Jesus said, you know, the, the temple is, is the house of prayer, that was communion with God. Unless you were able to go there, you were on the outs with God. The shepherds were on the outs with God. The, 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 and they, they knew this. And the, the culture would say, shepherds, if God has anything for you, it's judgment. And so the shepherds turned their back on the culture. They developed... Uh, a reputation for being dishonest and for being uh, hi- highly deceptive. Matter of fact, the shepherd's testimony was not allowed in court. Isn't it fascinating that the angels come to the shepherds? Didn't get, they didn't go to the palace. They didn't go to the middle income area. They went to the shepherds. And without judgment, they said, unto you. Right? And, an angel of the Lord appeared to them. And the glory of the Lord shone around them. And they were terrified. The word there is uh, two Greek, Greek words. Phobia, fear, and, and, and mega. Megaphobia. These guys, megaphobics. They, they had magnified fear. Now, they, were, they were terrified, petrified. Let me side trail for just a second. Because where does this whole fear thing come from? Well, we, we, it starts in Genesis 3. Anybody who's outside of a relationship with God on one level or another lives in fear. Remember this in Genesis 3. Adam and Eve are fine until they, they sin. And then they go hide themselves. God's walking through the garden. He says, Adam, where are you? And Adam says, I heard you coming. And I was afraid. Sin does that. If you are not in relationship with God, you are fearful of him. Who's, what's he going to do? Who is he? You're fearful of people. What are they going to think of me? You're fearful of your situations, your, your, your prognosis for the future. Fear, fear, fear drives you. And so the angel says to him, don't be afraid. If you've got a modern translation, it has a period there. Don't be afraid. I bring you good news of great joy. That's a bad translation. King James nails this one when it says, Don't be afraid for I bring you good news. It's not, you never know, ever tell you, don't be afraid or be encouraged. Well, you can't just shut off your emotions like that. Angels know that these guys can't just quit being afraid like that. Don't be afraid because, because I've got the solution to your fear. Don't be afraid because a savior, someone who's going to deliver you from your fear is here. Don't be afraid because someone who's going to guide you out of this fear is here. I bring you uh, good news of great joy that will be for all the people. Today in the town of David, a savior has been, been born to you. Christ, that's the Greek for Messiah. The Lord, that word Lord is the Greek word for Yahweh. The personal name of God, angel saying, God is coming to you. He's, he's there. 
Savior, he's the Messiah, he's there for you. Wow, what a gift. What a gift. Let's say you're working for GE and uh, you get a memo, Jeff Emmelt, the CEO, wants to see you. So you, 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 you go on out to the airport, you get in his private plane and you're looking at his private plane going, wow. This is kind of a nice thing. You don't want to sit down. This thing is so nice. But it takes you, gets you to, to Fairfield, Connecticut. You get off the plane. A limo's there. He picks you up. Wow, wow. Are you getting this thing? You've never been in a limo before. This is kind of, you get, it drives onto their campus and you're just looking at their campus going, man, do you believe this stuff? This is incredible. How manicured everything's looking. How wonderful everything's looking. It takes you to his building. You get in the elevator. You get off on his floor and your, your jaws drag in the very plush carpet. You're just amazed at the finery, the exquisitiveness of it all. You usher to his, his office and you get to his office and, and you've never seen such things before. And there he is behind his big mahogany desk and you're just, Amazed. This is one of the most financially powerful men in the world. This guy dines with presidents. This guy controls uh, gross national products of countries. This is, and and, and he's, he's dressed in, in such a way. And you've heard of stories of his yachts and of his other homes. I'm guessing that at that point, when you're standing face to face with him, you are probably kind of feeling uncomfortable a little bit. Probably a little bit of, uh, uh, uh. <laughs> probably this is not an exciting thing for you. It's probably kind of a sad or scary thing for you. I just want to get out of here kind of thing for you. Now, the angels come to the shepherds and say, you, God wants to see you. You can imagine. God, my Savior, the Messiah. And so uh, if they would have been uh, requested to come see him in a palace, I'm guessing they would be feeling a little bit. But they go to a stable. If shepherds felt comfortable anywhere, I'm guessing they'd feel comfortable inside a stable. They look around the animals and you know what? That's what they, who they grew up with. There's almost like a brotherhood with, with the animals. They, they uh, understand them. They're not very, the smell, even though it might make you and I sick, for a shepherd, this is, this is home. And the, the, the manger that one of those guys probably built, there's the Messiah in it. I can imagine the shepherds looking and going, who would have thought it? The Messiah is one of us. He's one of us. And they look at Mary and Joseph and they're, they're dirty refugees in a very unwelcome situation where the, the, the world is, is not kind to them. There's not even a place for her to be. And they're probably saying, we can relate. I, can, I can't imagine that Jesus could have done anything else to break down the barriers between himself and shepherds. And this was just a harbinger of his whole life because he was going to hang out, right, with, with, with the tax gatherers and, and the sinners. He was going to meet with the, the gal, the woman at the well who had a pretty rough past and te- testimony. He was going to hang out with Zacchaeus and with, with Matthew. This is, he came, this is the deal. He came for the shepherds. As a shepherd. Because as, as rough and tumble as these guys were, they were Jewish. They knew that, that if there was a God, if he was going to come, send his Messiah, um, again, they wouldn't have a part of it. Because they were shepherds, they couldn't even get to the temple, for crying out loud. But still, they knew this. King David, 
He, he was one of us. He was a shepherd. And what Jesus, I think, is saying is, I have got more in common than you with you than you know. I'm come to shepherd you. I, I'm just like you. I'm going to lay down my life for the sheep. Just like you, the religious establishment is going to hate me. Just like you, I'm not going to have a place to lay my head. Just like you, I'm going to give my life for the flock. And when, if the shepherds understood theology when Jesus grew and he died, they would be saying, well, of course. Of course. Because that's what shepherds do. They give their life for the flock. So yeah, of, of course. The, the reason Jesus came, the angels came to the shepherds is because only shepherdy type folk recognize that they need a savior. And so he comes to the shepherds today. Uh, favorite illustration of, of Tim Keller, as it says in 1961, the Russians you know, put the first man in space. And uh, Anita Khrushchev was, Khrushchev was the premier of Russia at the time and uh, was kind of mocking uh, God when they got back. He said, you know what, we went up to the heavens and there's no God, just so you know, God is not there. Don't see him. Basically, we knocked on the door of heaven and you know what, nobody's home. Just so you know, there is no God. And that that uh, spurred C.S. Lewis to write a response in his essay, that The Scene uh, I. He says, you know what, um, we can't expect, if there is a God who created us, we can't expect him to relate to us the way a man on the second floor relates to a man on the first floor. Now, how does a man on the, the, the first floor wants to relate to a guy on the second floor? He just goes up the stairs and he sees him. But that's, if God created us, then the only way he could, we could relate to him would be the way Shakespeare might re- relate to Hamlet. You know, the only way Hamlet would know of Shakespeare, he couldn't go outside his world, outside his story to discover him. The only way he could know it is if Shakespeare wrote himself into the story somehow. If, if Shakespeare revealed himself to Hamlet, that's all Hamlet would know. Now, a good illustration of that is uh, a friend of, of C.S. Lewis, Dor- Dorothy Sears. Dorothy Sears, uh, author, was one of the first women to graduate from Oxford. She wrote, she was a writer of uh, detective mystery fiction. By her own words, she was a very unattractive person. But she wrote um, a series, a detective mystery series, where the main character was a guy by the name of Lord Peter Whimsey. And Lord Peter Whimsey was a, an aristocrat and an uh, uh, amateur sleuth, but he was solving all these, these uh, mysteries through the books. Well, about halfway through the series, a new character emerges. Uh, a gal by the name of Harriet Vane. And in the story, Harriet Vane was one of the first women to graduate from Oxford. And Harriet Vane was a writer of mystery uh, detective fiction. And Harriet Vane uh, said that she was not very attractive. And in the series, Peter, uh, Lord Peter Whimsey and, and Harriet meet and fall in love and get married and solve mysteries together and live happily ever after. That Dorothy Sayers scholars say that, some of them, that what Dorothy did is she looked into the world that she created and she looked at the man that she created and she fell in love with him. And, and she wrote herself in to the story in order to solve his loneliness, his need for companionship. That's 
what Jesus did for us. He, he looked at his world. He looked at the people that he created, that he loved very much. Uh, he did not need us, but we desperately needed him. And he wrote himself into our, our world. So let me ask you this Christmas time. Do you, do you know him? Do you know him? Do, do you understand that this is why he came for our benefit on, on our, our behalf? Do you, do you recognize that, that your life is under his control 100%? Uh, that he's not watching over, he's working in your life. Do you recognize that his kingdom is not of this world? It's radically different. So it's not what we're thinking. It's upside down. Do you recognize that he came for shepherds as a shepherd? Uh, 